A United Nations report on climate change says we are code red for humanity. I ask the question tonight, is this level of alarmism responsible? Plus, the NHS is going to spend £2 billion subcontracting out hip operations, knee replacements to the private sector. Is this the right way for us to go? And Sean Bailey, who stood against Sadiq Khan for the Conservatives in the mayoral election, joins me on Talking Pints. So, a major climate report. A senior UN environmental official has said entire nations could be wiped off the face of the earth by rising sea levels if global warming trends are not reversed. Coastal flooding and crop failures would create an exodus of eco-refugees, threaten political chaos, and that was from the director of the New York office of the UN. Noel Brown, his name is, he said governments have a 10-year window of opportunity to solve the greenhouse effect before it goes beyond human control. As the warming melts polar ice caps, ocean levels will rise by up to three feet, enough to cover the Maldives and other flat island nations, he told the Associated Press in an interview. Their study found coastal regions will be inundated. One-sixth of Bangladesh could be flooded displacing one-fourth of its 90 million people. A fifth of Egypt's arable land in the Nile Delta would be flooded, cutting off its food supply. That was reported in the Associated Press in an interview with the United Nations on the 30th of June, 1989. Yes, that's right. In 1989, the United Nations told us we had 10 years left to save the world or it would be beyond control. And this theme was picked up by many famous people, including the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles, who in 2008 visited the European Parliament, and I was there sitting in the front row, and he gave this speech. And in the last few months, we have learnt that the North Polar ice cap is melting so fast that some scientists are predicting that in seven years' time, it will completely disappear in summer. Others think it will take a little longer. But the mere fact that such a development is conceivable at all uh, is, you would have thought, yet another wake-up call as we sleepwalk our way towards the edge of catastrophe. For the lives of billions of people depend on your response, and none of us, I'm afraid to say, will ever be forgiven by our children and grandchildren if we falter and fail. Thank you. Well done, well done. Huge applause. Standing ovation. They all thought it was marvellous. He also called for the EU to have more power. I simply couldn't believe it. Everybody in the room standing. Everybody applauding from across the political spectrum. Quite Astonishing. By 2015, the North Pole would be gone. Ah, there's someone sitting down there refusing to stand. Yes, that was me. That was me back in 2008. And I absolutely refused to stand and applaud. I couldn't believe that the head of the throne was urging more power for the European Union. But I also thought he was being overly alarmist. Concerned about the environment. Well, that, of course, is a good thing and a sensible thing. 
but the thought that the North Pole would have gone by 2015, and it just hasn't happened. On to today's report from the IPCC, and the prediction is heat waves, flooding, droughts will be more frequent and more intense as the world is set to hit the 1.5 degree global warming limit within the next 20 years. And I'm asking you tonight, is this alarmism responsible? And please let me know your views, gbviews at gbnews.uk. And look, I am not saying that man-made activity, man-made carbon emissions are not contributing to change in our environment. I don't know. I'm not a denier. I just don't know. I do know that things like sunspot activity over hundreds of thousands of years have had a big effect on the Earth's temperature. I do know that volcanoes, whether on land or under sea, can emit vast amounts of carbon dioxide. I certainly agree that man has had a very damaging effect. Uh, plastic in the oceans, fish stocks, deforestation, a loss of biodiversity. There are many, many things that man has done that are completely and utterly wrong. I want to see pollution cut. I've been an environmentalist all my life. I've just questioned the obsession with carbon dioxide and its direct link to global warming. It may well be happening, but is it right? Is it right? Was it right in 1989 for the United Nations to say that within 10 years it would go beyond anyone's control? Was it right of Prince Charles to tell us the North Pole will be gone by 2015? And is it right today that we have the same message being put out? Now, of course, for Prime Ministers like Boris Johnson, this is absolutely perfect. It means more green taxes, it means more government control, and it means more transfer of money from the poor in this country to the rich as we tax those at the bottom of society and give lots of money to large landowners and other people. And is it right to terrify our children in this way? Well, joining me now with perhaps a different view is Laurie Leyburn langton author of Planet on Fire and Climate Change Researcher. And thank you very much for joining me here on GB News. Now, you know, I did point out that the 1989 report from the UN was, you know, apocalyptic, even more than today. And all I'm really asking, Laurie, is, you know, shouldn't we use the right language around this subject? Yeah, so the, the first thing I want to say is that the what an individual UN um, employee says or said back then or what the you know, heir to the throne says is different from what the what's called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, snappily named, says about the science. And, and that's the body that released the report today. Now, this body, the IPCC, is kind of like the referee in the sort of to and throw of various narratives on the climate crisis, right? And is it, it's an extraordinarily well-focused uh, and educated referee. And this is the sixth report that has come out, which has tried to give us the status of the science since I was born at the end of the 80s. And it's, it's that that we should look at when we're, when we're trying to understand the severity of the climate crisis, because that's the sort of gold plate okay. in describing what's okay, going well, on. Now, I agree with your point. Fair about enough, language, right? fair enough. But to be fair, the comment in 1989 was from the head of the New York office. It wasn't just some, you know, back office employee. Yeah, sure. We, you know, we should talk to Noel Brown or whatever his name was and say, do you think that was the right language to use at the time? I'm pretty sure that that person would say, well, I do think it is because we, you know, 
you may you may have seen the report today. I had a quick look at it earlier. It is dense, it is scientific, and therefore it's quite difficult for people in politics to really get a head around and to tell stories about, which is how we perceive politics. And I can understand that people in the past and now have used language that is in some ways alarming. Now, I think yeah. there's a difference between language that is unnecessarily scary or disproportionate and then language that sort of sounds an alarm. And a lot of the language that we're, we're seeing used at the moment, um, you could see, for example, the language used by Patrick Vallance, the chief scientific advisor today, and I think in a Guardian article, it is becoming more proportionate because the problem is getting worse and will get worse unless sufficient action is taken. So how long will the North Pole last, in your opinion? In my opinion, well, my opinion isn't that relevant there because it, 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 well, it is. The answer I mean, I mean you're a climate the... change researcher. You've, you've written the book Planet on Fire. I mean, you know, you know, I'm not saying you're wrong, by the way. I'm not saying there's not a link between man's activity and what is going on in the climate. That may well be true. But is it right to terrify everybody? And, 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 and more than that, what can we do about it? I mean, if we in this country, you know, go on pursuing very expensive electricity, which we've been doing for years, all we're really doing is transferring our manufacturing from this country to India and China. Doesn't really help very much, does it? Well, OK, let, let's deal with those two things. The first one on the Arctic, we know and we, we've seen it, it's happened already, that the temperature rises in the Arctic are far more than the rest of the world. We're, you know, we're seeing winters now or summers in, in the Arctic region now where temperatures are higher than we would have here in the summer, where the place is on fire. And that's extraordinary and very worrying, not just for how those areas, you know, the, the animals and the cities in those regions that are getting very badly damaged. It's also bad for the rest of the planet. It's less ice, means less white stuff to reflect light. So that's very concerning. Now, I don't... I haven't looked at the latest papers to, to have an idea of exactly when there won't be any sea ice in the Arctic, but it's, it's going to happen in my lifetime, most likely. But the Maldives then are still you're, there, aren't they? I mean, we were told in 89 the Maldives could be gone within a few years. They're still there. But, the, you know, there are lots of different... Think of it like this. There's a whole, like, cloud of scientific papers that get released every single year that think about what could happen in the future and try to make predictions. And every five or six years, this IPCC body sort of takes the cloud and works out the, the, the core bit of it, the most useful bit in the middle, right? And the sea level rise that we are seeing um, will mean at some point the Maldives is inundated. It was imprudent for people to put an exact date on that, right? But it is going to be happening in the future well, if we don't reduce Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's all well and good, but we keep being told it. And on, on the point about our behaviour... You know, Boris Johnson made a joke the other day about, about you know, Mrs. Thatcher closing all the coal pits and, 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 and being, you know, a great forerunner in the battle against CO2 emissions and climate change. But I had a look at the figures today and coal consumption is higher today than it was 10 years ago. So I repeat the point. You know, whatever we do here, if you're right with your views, it's China that needs to change far more than us, isn't it? Um... China has got a huge job on its hands to reduce emissions, right? Now, think of, the, think of the atmosphere like a bathtub. When you fill it up to a certain level, it's going to cause serious damage. And every country has a tap that's pouring water into that bathtub to stop the problem, to minimise the risk. And it's not just the Maldives getting inundated. It's places not being able to grow crops. I mean, you talk to people in Greece right now, are they going to be able to meet their food consumption if the whole place is on fire? Which we know is the likelihood is increasing as a result of the temperature rise. Now... Um, 
you, it, China has a huge job to do in closing its tap off, but ultimately every country needs to also close its tap. So sure, China needs to do a lot, a lot. We also need to do a lot to reduce ours as well. Now but we're tiny. Aren't another we? come key on, th- come on. We are, you know, we are one percent of the world's emissions, yeah. and yet, you know, those fires in Greece are all too real. The fires in California, you're absolutely right, they're all too real. And yet, Allegra Stratton, who's the prime minister's uh, climate spokesperson, said last week that all this rain in August was because of climate change. I mean, it's quite. What I'm saying to you is, we don't get a coherent message, do we, on any of this? No, we we do. The the climate is the thing that determines the weather, which is what we see day to day, right? And the rising temperature means that, imagine a dice that you roll every day and it determines the weather, right? The dice is being loaded towards more extreme fires in, say, Greece, or wetter weather like we're experiencing here in the UK, which could be damaging crops. Any weather event, any weather event is because of rising CO2 output, yeah? No, it's weather events could be becoming more severe and frequent. Well, we know they are becoming more extreme. Well, and the more extreme stuff is becoming more frequent. Well, it doesn't. There mean- are some parts of this report that are actually scientifically written rather well. In, I mean, for example, page two thousand. This is not. I'm not joking. Page two thousand eight hundred and forty-nine does say that there is low confidence that human influence is directly leading to drought. So there's all sorts in these 4,000 pages. But overall, as a parting message, Laurie, you know, I understand you are concerned about the future of our planet, and I don't knock you for that at all. I do criticise the movement for being alarmist and, frankly, for scaring our kids. But what's the one thing that Boris Johnson could do, in your opinion, to make a real difference? He could provide much more money to be invested in the technologies that will make a difference because that is the biggest economic opportunity for any country in this century. And Britain is falling behind the pack. If we want to get the benefits of the better jobs, the better technologies and the better health impacts that that will lead to, Britain's got to do more to be uh, leading in that area like countries like China are. And it's exactly that kind of stuff that will lead us to turn our tap off as all other countries need to as well. I'm very sceptical about China in this regard, and they may make commitments, but I'm not sure they'll have up to them. Laurie, thank you for joining us here on GB News. Well, as ever, folks, you know, you will get two sides of an argument, and that's what we're here to do. Uh, I still take the view very strongly that this stuff is alarmist, that we keep hearing it repeated year after year after year, and I think it's irresponsible for these UN reports to use the language that they do. Tell me what you think. GBviews at gbnews.uk. And by the way, in Westminster and in the media set in London, there is no debate on this issue at all. It is all taken as gospel, which often makes me think they might just be wrong. Now, last week and the week before, I've been debating the upcoming health emergency, and it's coming. 5.3 million operations behind on the NHS at the moment, two-year waiting lists for hip replacements, knee replacements, and almost unbelievably... Over the weekend, we saw reports out from the Nuffield Trust and the Institute for Fiscal Studies suggesting that the waiting list could go up to 14 or 15 million over the course of the next few years. I've been making the argument that it would make sense to subcontract out things like hip replacements to the private sector to get the job done. And I'm really pleased to see over the weekend we got an announcement that this is actually happening. The government are going to spend £2 billion contracting out 
you know, many of these operations. They're called routine operations, but I guess if it's you that's having the operation, it probably doesn't feel that routine. But is using the private sector, is this in many ways going away from the founding principles of the National Health Service? Is it, as some might fear, the back door to privatisation? Or does it, as I believe, make absolute, complete, perfect sense? Well, joining me now is Dr John Campbell, semi-retired nurse and senior lecturer in nursing with over 40 years in the NHS and education. And thank you very much indeed, John, for joining us here on GB News. Thank you, Nigel. It's great to be on. So when you heard the announcement overnight that £2 billion was to be spent, paid to private providers, private hospitals, to perform operations, you know, such as hip replacements, rather than people waiting for two years. What was your response to that? Basically, I think it's potentially good news, but there's quite a few background issues here, really. I mean, at the moment, there's no government in the world can really afford all the health care that's available for all of its people. And yet, because these treatments are available, because we have a lot of high-tech treatments and we hear about a lot of new scientific developments, we kind of think we should all, we should all have those. And at the moment, I think we're spending about roughly 10% of uh, GDP on health. How, how much more do we want to spend? I remember when I was a young staff nurse in the hospital, we had four general surgeons and we had two orthopedic surgeons. Now we've got about 24 surgeons all working in different specialties. So I really think we need a bit more honesty and a bit more transparency. What can we afford? What yeah. can we not afford? Yeah, and we've and got, that, we've got argument extends, that argument extends, of course, into cosmetic surgery and many other areas. But, John, as somebody, yeah. you know, a lifetime working in the National Health Service, and, and, and thank you mm. for what you've done, because that really matters to society, does it worry you that the private sector gets involved? or is I mean, are you one that believes in the principle that it must all be done by the state, it must all be controlled, um, and, and that really the privatisation of the health service would be a disaster? Because I know there are many in the country that feel that way. Not at all. I'm far more pragmatic than that, Nigel. Basically, we want good health care of the people, for the people, by the people, at the point of need, and that chronic conditions can be dealt with. Yeah. Because at the, at the moment, we've got this chronic problem. Even before COVID, of course, there was quite a big wait, waiting yeah. list. And COVID has exacerbated that. I guess in healthcare, we'd call it an acute on chronic problem. So it's really highlighted it. And it's good to see that Sajid Javid has come. It seems to be talking about the actual figures that we've got reasonably clearly and the projections that are likely to happen. I mean, this 5.3 million of the people on the waiting list now. Yeah. But the other thing is, there's about 7 million people missing who actually should have been on the waiting list. So I remember yeah, hospitals I mean, were like spookily quiet for quite a long time at the start of this pandemic. Yeah. You know, where were the chest pains? Where, where were the, you know, the, the sore tummies, the headaches and all, all the things that we usually no, get I'm in? Not, that there was John, just I'm, not, I'm, not I'm with you there. on this completely. You know, I think... The founding principle of the, of, 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 of the health service was to give people care that was free yeah. at the point of delivery. Yeah. And whether that delivery mm. is through an NHS hospital or, frankly, contracted out to a private hospital, what really matters is the patient gets treated. So we're very much at one on that. Um, what, I mean, give there are provisos, though, on that, Nigel, of course. Um, you know, the private finance initiative basically has been disproportionately expensive. Again, again, I don't want to talk about the old days with rose-tinted yeah. spectacles, but in the hospital, we used to have our own cooks. We had our own tradesmen. We'd have a joiner. 
We'd have someone who'd do the floor work. We'd have someone who'd fix the roof. We had all the tradesmen. You know, yeah. the, the baker in our hospital was famous all over the town for producing quality products. Now we get food up in from about 100 miles away on the motorway. And we, we have all of these things like the portering services are all contracted out. Yeah. And that takes away from the whole esprit de corps, really, of the hospital. It doesn't feel like the community that it used to feel like. Wow. And the, the, the efficiencies in these things are really open to question and as well as yeah. that we had things like Stafford, staffordshire they tried to do an end of life care that spent 1.2 billion contract and then basically no one took it up and it had to be dropped so the, the how this is done practically is fraught with difficulties we don't want to end up with a situation like the united states that spend more on healthcare than any other country and it works out way more expensive than any other country because of the inefficiencies of the system well, and yeah, the way and that also, the system is, is, is broken down. Also in America, the risk of being sued, of course, because, you know, it's a very litigious country. John, I want to ask you one last quick question, if I may. Yeah. What chance do you think we've got of reducing that waiting list? Um, in the short term, we can reduce it, but it's going to be there for some time. I mean, people are talking about 2025 before things get back to normal. So we are in for a bit of a turbulent time in the health service. And it's really sad to see because they get people, there's people in pain, people waiting for gallbladder yeah. operations, hip operations, renal stone operations, cardiac bypasses. All these things cause a lot of human pain, suffering and death. And it really is, it really are, we we're in a very unfortunate situation at the moment. The health service is not really delivering the the pace we'd like it to deliver. No. So pr private uh, private outsourcing is one thing. The other thing we used to do quite a bit, I don't know how you'd feel about it, Nigel, is we used to, um, some patients would go abroad for treatment. So it would actually be paid by the health service and the surgery might actually yeah. be done well, in, in somewhere you know, like, I, you know, I, Netherlands I, or somewhere. I think my attitude is whatever, whatever we have to do has got to be yeah. done to reduce those waiting lists. And I think that the private sector in this country would expand and help the NHS and maybe save the NHS. Otherwise, I fear will be a society of haves and have-nots, those that can afford treatment and those that can't. John Campbell, thank let, you. Let's, let's just hope it's synergistic. Yeah, well, we're going to have to have a lot of hope uh, because I do fear a looming health emergency. John Campbell, thank you yep. very much for joining us. Now, in a minute, I'm going to show you some photographs of Liverpool. It is my WTF moment. You just won't believe what they've done to Queen Victoria and Gladstone. In fact, it's all too much. I need to take a break. Honestly, I do. Vincent has emailed in to say there are too many people living on this planet, hence why climate change is happening. Well, Vince, you're absolutely right. We have, I think, in my lifetime, trebled the population on this earth, and that's where major pressure comes from. Sean says to me on email, like recent COVID modelling, this climate report spells out a wide range of potential outcomes, but only concentrates on the most extreme and outlandish scenarios. Well, interesting you say that, because actually... You know, deep buried within the report was a phrase. In fact, chapter one, page 303, I didn't read this myself, I can assure you, but someone did, was scenario uncertainty. So sometimes what you see in the top line of the report, what senior UN bosses talk about, what politicians pick up, actually drill into the detail, they do admit there is a degree of uncertainty. But that's not the stuff within a 4,000-page report that tends to make the news. Now, a lot of people have enjoyed working from home. 
Those in the private sector have hated being at home because they want to get back to work and they fear losing their jobs. Not all, but many. But for those in the public sector, working at home has been terrific. It's been great because they know they're not going to lose their job. They know they're not going to lose pension entitlement. And it's pretty astonishing that amongst civil servants, you know, working in Whitehall, working in the big departments in London, office occupancy is running at about 11%. Yeah, nearly 90% are still at home and appear not to want to come back to work very quickly. This led over uh, the weekend to a cabinet minister unnamed suggesting that if civil servants don't want to get back to work, they should have their pay cut. After all, uh, you know, they haven't got the cost of buying lunch or coffee or train fares. Tory grandee Ian Duncan Smith said last night, civil servants need to get off their backsides and into the office, and they need to do it pretty quickly. And to add to all of that, within the last two hours, we've learned that the BBC, that wonderful state-funded institution that gets nearly three and a half billion pounds of your money every year, that has simply the most enormous office in London that can accommodate at any one time up to about 6,000 different people. We've learned that the BBC have decided they will now have a new hybrid form of working where people who work for the BBC will only be expected to be in the office for a few days a week. So that giant building, broadcasting house, uh, paid for with our money is going to be half empty. I think people need to get back to work. I don't buy the argument that people are more productive working from home. I just, I mean, maybe some, maybe if you're a computer programmer or you're doing something where you work on your own with your own ideas, but generally I don't buy it. Well, look, to debate this, joining us now is Dave Penman, General Secretary of the FDA Union. And Dave, uh, you know, you represent professionals and managers in public service. I mean, when you hear Ian Duncan Smith saying, you know, move your backsides and do it quickly, how do you react to it? Well, I think my member's quite astonished by some of the comments from ministers who are not brave enough to put their name to it and from a former minister like Ian Duncan Smith. They've been working hard during the pandemic, delivering public services. They've dealt with a six-fold increase in universal credit claimants. Um, uh, they've, they've designed and delivered the furlough scheme that supported 9 million workers. As the Chancellor said, that was designed and delivered from kitchen tables and spare bedrooms up and down the country. So they've been working uh, as hard, if not harder, than, than they, ha they were before because of the challenges of working in a remote environment and delivering public services. So I, I was quite astonished, to be honest, by, by those sorts of comments. But do you understand, Dave, you know, why, I mean, you know, not just not just the people you represent, but, 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 but why people paying their licence fee. You know, do you not understand why people are taxpayers, licence fee payers? You know, do you not understand why they think actually people should be back at work? We've had the vaccine. It appears to be very, very effective. Uh, you know, it, a lot of our money goes to pay staff working in the public sector. Do you not understand why there's a slight sense of anger about this? And certainly London... Um, is, is pretty much deserted. Yeah, and, and I think there's a couple of points there. One, it's not about being back to work, it's been back to the office. People have been working um, throughout the pandemic, whether they've been working at home or, as many have been, uh, working in offices, whether that's the public sector or private sector. You also make a good point about London. I came into to Fenchurch Street Station right in the heart of the city, and I have been doing that over the last couple of months. And you wander about there in the middle of the day, 
and it's empty. It's incomparable to what it was like before. Now, those are organizations where the bottom line cuts it, where they're profit-making organizations, but they recognized as well that a hybrid arrangement where people can work from home doing jobs that can be done as effectively from home, but might come into the office to do different parts of their job is an effective way for them to work. And, and the reason why this is working is because it works for employers and employees. Employees get greater flexibility. They don't have the commute five days a week. Employers get reduced costs. And for the taxpayer, that means reduced costs in terms of office accommodation. So it's a win-win for taxpayers, it's a win-win for civil servants, and it's a win for, win for employers and employees in the private sector. And Dave, finally, you know, do you really think in your heart of hearts that hybrid working, this, this mixture, this balance of people being in the office and being at home, do you think hybrid working is going to be the long-term solution for this? I, I think if you look at the world of work, it evolves and changes, particularly as technology changes. What, what we've seen is this technological revolution and this incredible kind of social experiment during lockdown that's led people to look at this way of working. Whether that's, that will be as attractive in five years' time or ten years' time or whether something new will come along is really hard to tell. But I think actually what, what's quite interesting is that both in the private and public sector this is being embraced. And it's given people a bit of balance back into their lives where they don't have that long daily commute five days a week. But remember, most people want a bit of both. Most people actually, whether it's in the public or private sector, want some time at home, but they want to be in the office as well because they recognise collaborating with their colleagues, the social life that comes uh, with being in the office is something that they want as well. So I think that model of kind of hybrid is probably going to be here for the short term anyway. Well, we'll see. Dave Penman, thank you for joining us. And you know, maybe hybrid working is the future. Maybe that's the way the public sector and the BBC will work. Maybe elements of the private sector long term will work that way. I am just not convinced about productivity in any way at all. I think it will do us a lot of damage. Now Liverpool to Liverpool. It's hard to believe, but a documentary special called Statues Redressed, uh, and it's being put on by Sky Arts, <coughs> and they've decided that Liverpool... And senior figures from the Victorian age must atone for their sins. A statue of William Gladstone in Liverpool has been shrouded in a pan-African flag. There he is. That's Gladstone. Uh, and this is a reminder that his family fortune came from plantations and slavery. I mean, it's difficult to believe that the city council in Liverpool are allowing this sort of thing. But, you know, in reality, Gladstone, who served four terms as prime minister, became a staunch critic of slavery as he got older and worked for its abolition. None of these complexities are reflected in this artistic reworking nonsense. And the former head of state, I'm afraid, has received similar treatment. Yes, Queen Victoria's statue has been dressed up in African cotton, which reflects Liverpool's complicity with slavery and how Queen Victoria and Britain were beneficiaries as recently as 150 years ago. And it just goes on and on. Other figures were dressed up, Disraeli, you name it. Um, uh, I mean, Disraeli is, is accused of, of making racist comments. Perhaps the organisers of this festival have forgotten that he was actually the first Jewish prime minister in the United Kingdom, or maybe they have missed that completely. I just give up. Liverpool councillor Harry Doyle said, as the global conversation 
about the role and future of statues and monuments gets more intense, the chance to work with Sky Arts on this unique project feels like perfect timing and the right thing for us to do as a city. Well, if that's the best you've got representing you in Liverpool, very good luck to you. But I get a bit tired of this endless, tired conversation about the UK's complicity with slavery. I wonder what they're teaching our kids at school. Are they teaching them that actually it was this country that not only first abolished slavery, but then spent decades campaigning all over the world at a massive cost in terms of money and a massive cost in thousands of sailors' lives to drive out the slave trade, which we saw as evil. And do we tell our kids that modern slavery persists in the world today and the elements of it are even in this country? I don't think so. This self-loathing and hatred has to stop. When it comes to this issue of slavery, we've actually got a better record than virtually anybody else. Now, Boris Johnson was up in Scotland visiting a wind farm since I was last with you on Thursday and chose to use the moment to tell a joke. And the joke was that Margaret Thatcher did a great amount for our climate change policy and reducing carbon emissions by closing the coal mines. Now, was this just an aside from Boris Johnson? One of those Borisisms, a jokey little moment that doesn't matter. Or will it cut deep into those coal mining constituencies? And not just the ones that were closed in the 1980s, but the ones that were closed in the 1990s under John Major's government, Michael Heseltine being responsible, after those pits had broken every production record known to man, and after the UDM, the breakaway union, had helped to break Scargill and the hard left trade unions. And I, I don't know, but I sense, having spent a fair bit of time myself in those mining communities over the last decade, I sense myself that actually those comments will be very insulting and very wounding in parts of the red wall that fell to the Conservatives last time round, and I think it will do Boris a great deal of harm in those areas. Although, whether Sir Keir Starmer, living in North London, is capable of reconnecting with the mining communities is something I don't know the answer to, but I will be, this week, heading back to the coalfields to try and find out. Coming up in a moment, I'm going to talk with Sean Bailey, who did much better in the recent mayoral elections than anybody else thought he would. At the end of the show, we'll do Barrage the Farage, so keep your tough questions coming in, questions that I don't get any sight of beforehand. But before that, far more importantly, joining me for Talking Pints this evening is Sean Bailey. Sean, welcome Great to see you here. Great to be here. Evening. Great to see you and be here for all your guests. You know, you are this respectable figure. <laughs> Pillar of respectability, representing the Conservative Party in the mayoral elections, where you did a lot better than many thought, and we'll come to that in a moment, and why perhaps your party didn't help you a bit more than they did, but we'll come to that. But actually, Sean, when you were younger, you were a bit of a bad lad, weren't you? 
Well, I wouldn't say I was a bad lad. I, I was I was surrounded by people that had an alternative view of, of criminality. Like, <laughs> I, I grew up in... Oh, no, come on. That really is. That really is PC speak. Of course, of course. You mean look, you were involved in crime? Listen, I grew up in an area where crime was the norm, and if you didn't get involved, you then spent your whole time watching your back because people trying to drag you in. And it took me a little time to build up the self-respect and, and quite frankly, the, the guts to, to push back slightly. I, I, I pushed back quite hard and went a different route, but... That, that beginning was what made me able to help the young people I've helped along the way, because I understood the pressures they were under. So what got you out of crime? Was it education? Was it faith? What was, what was it that got you out of that it's simple. bad place? It's simple the way. So I did gymnastics and was in the army cadets. Yep. And those two things broadened my horizon and gave me the ability to focus. I had a mum. My mum is a force of nature and simply wouldn't quit. And I also had uncles who could help steer me around some of the tougher things in life. And the other thing is, much later on when I was much late, arguably adult, I then came to faith. I, I'm a you know, yeah. card-carrying Christian and that does a yeah. lot for me. But I had a number of things along the way that helped me out, but it was largely because of my family. My family refused to let me go down Good. what they saw as a bad alley. And not everybody has that advantage, of course. No, no, no. no. And, and when I say family, let me be clear, of course my blood relatives, but my wider community. I'm of Jamaican descent and one of the things about the Jamaican community is it's dominated by women who look after you. They don't have to be a blood relation to look after you. I mean, my auntie Norma, I didn't know we weren't blood relatives until <laughs> I was in my 30s. No, but she was in my life. She helped yeah. me out. And yeah. so um, Auntie Ryan, Auntie Nez, all those people. Yeah, we had, um, I had big, big Phil Campion in a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And he, of course, now is taking a very senior role with army cadets and trying to help kids from difficult backgrounds. And, and so the army cadets was also a part of that, yeah? I cannot tell you how instrumental the Army Cadets was for me. I'm dyslexic, wasn't really working out in school, yeah. but the Army Cadets helped me to learn to focus. I really enjoyed being part of the team, and that really helped me go forward. And I had officers and NCOs who really helped me develop as a person. The thing about the British services is they were working on personal development before it became a fancy term. <laughs> yeah, and, and they really helped They me want out. to bring the best out of people. Exactly, and they always find a place for you in a team. People like George Idiol, sort of my contemporary, my age, right up to Captain Connolly, you know, who eventually became a colonel. But those kind of people were instrumental in my life. And just that focus. And when all of my friends were getting dragged off into more and more serious gang crime, I was in a very different gang, yeah. a gang that was part of a much bigger country. And that, that kept keep me safe. And was that gang crime, was it all drugs related or...? It was Mostly. largely, it was largely, what, what it is, make no mistake, wherever you live in this country, yeah, a large part of your crime is driven by drugs. And if you're in one of the major cities, just just a bigger proportion of that. Drugs begets violence, drug begets yeah. homelessness, it does all kinds crime, of things. Crime, uh, uh, yeah. to raise money. I had Peter Hitchens sitting where you are last Thursday, um, and Peter Hitchens feels that the war on drugs has never been fought, that we must arrest people, we must put them in prison, we must... I kind of think that the war against drugs is a bit like the war against, or the, the, the sort of prohibition battles in America in the 20s and 30s. I think we've kind of gone beyond that. But I mean, how, how do you see the drugs issue, Sean? What would you do about it? It's two big chunks of it. One is the crime it's generating. Crime in London has become so bad that we're now exporting it to other parts of the country. Yep. That we need to get on top of. And that export of crime is, is almost exclusively drugs. There's other things linked to it, but it's definitely drugs. The other thing is about the supply. If you come from my community, people constantly talk to us about drug dealing our drug use. Let's be clear, most young black kids don't take drugs. They just don't. They're expensive. But what's happening is if things driving the demand. So if you're having nice, polite drug use, you know, you're, 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 you're a city banker, you're not robbing anyone. 
but you are providing people the opportunity to, in their mind, have to rob someone. No, I'm sure that's yeah. true. I, I, I made it one of my policies, you know, just to test the water. Why don't we test drug um, bankers in the same way we test, you know, crane drivers? Wow, <laughs> everybody freaked out. And that showed me that we need to say to people, look at your own drug use and f imagine what kind of activity that's driving in communities that you're not part of. But when it comes to the crime around this, and I'm talking about knife crime, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, Sadiq Khan has been mayor of London for a long time. Uh, all forms of crime, in particular knife crime, are getting worse. But surely if we're being blunt about it, a lot of that knife crime is black on black, isn't it? Listen, the term black on black, he's been eschewed. You're not allowed to say that anymore. But, but if we don't... Look, well, I, I'm, I mean, look, no, 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 I, I, no, I understand no, that. No, no, I, no, 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 talk about what's really happening, then we cannot solve it. I speak to many police officers who are frustrated. Their real heart is to solve the problem, but they're not allowed to say this is largely happening in the black community. Or look, or no, I had to say to one police officer, what's the last crime you dealt with? He said, it was a black lad who stabbed another black lad. And he said, before that, it's the same as well. We have to be able to have that conversation or we can't solve that problem. I said to Sadiq Khan the other day, what are you doing to solve the murder? unbelievably high murder rate in the black community, he laughed at me and called me an angry man and said I misunderstood. It's him who misunderstands, because even if you take away gang crime, even if you factor in for, for poverty, the black murder of black people, particularly in London, is still double what it is in any other community. Something needs to be done. You're not a fan of Sadiq, and I get that, and I understand that. You stood against him. Uh, I have to say, Sean, I, you know, I'd met you before. I liked you. I thought you stood for some very good principles. Uh, you don't want us all to be divided up into our different groups. You want us to come together as one community. And I, you and I talked about that at, you know, at length, and I, and I respected you for it. When the final votes came through, after the second preferences, and you, there you were on 45%, I mean, it was a hell of a good performance. And why did the Conservative Party... You had your friends and supporters around you, but why did the Conservative Party not help you? I mean, what... It, 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 does Boris Johnson have a problem with you? I think you have to, you have to just break it up into what it is. Fortunately for me, Boris is my guy. I remember when, when they were saying, we're going to deselect Sean, all this nonsense. Mm. Boris rang me personally. He said, right. he said forget the bugger, Sean. I, I won't use the exact language. <laughs> he said, forget the bugger, Sean. I'm on your TV, side. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me who I need to go and rough up. Yeah. Because they tried this on me. You're my guy. But they weren't giving you any money, were they? But, but they never give anybody any money. The idea that... But I've seen, but I've seen the money that they've raised well, over the last well, two listen, years. Well, listen, I had to raise my own money. That is true. Tens of millions. But so, so did everybody else. But the thing here, here here's the real thing. It wasn't the, the, the party, per se, who, who, who didn't support me. For instance, I was selected by the members, one of my proudest moments, because they had a choice. They selected me, made, they backed me all the is way. Is this the racist Conservative Party? Exactly, and they really did have a choice. <laughs> but, what, but what's interesting is the press wrote me off. Some of the time, people would call, they'll say London is a Labour city. It yeah. is not. The press in London are very Labour dominant. Can the Tories win it back? Yes, they can. And, and I'll tell you why they can win it back. My result showed me that people are beginning to tire of the stuff they're being fed. People are beginning to channel it, um, challenge it, excuse me. I remember a, a, a black guy stopped in the street, Rasta, and he said to me, you're that Tory boy. And I said, yeah, he said, man, I might have to vote Tory, <laughs> which, which for him was a big step. So I said, why? And he said, because we're not having a realistic conversation about the challenges that our, he used to talk about, the black community face. Every time someone bid to me, he said, go on, Sean, yeah. you'd hear some form of working class accent. You'd hear someone who, in my parlance, has to work for a living. 
There is a yeah. groundswell of people in London who just want to have a practical conversation about their needs, not be told that they're racist, sexist or any other ist because they don't agree with the sort of zeitgeist. They just want London to work. And by extension, the whole country, those, those people are there and they can be got. The passion hasn't gone. No, because I, I'm... But look, let's be clear. Party politics is a little bit... But I really like people. What I want is independent people to go on and live the lives they want to live. So does Sean Bailey run again? Sean Bailey has to check with his wife. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the first thing. And look, it, 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 it's, like, it's like this. If, if I thought I had something to offer, I certainly would consider it. If I was wanted, I'd also consider it. But I'd always say to anyone, the basis of my politics is helping working people have work to live the lives they want to live. I'm proud of my Britishness because I think it's a, a vehicle to bring us all together. And if you are being spoken to by any politician who is encouraging you to hate, is encouraging to you to not look at yourself as British, ask yourself why. The problem I see on the left, they're being more and more divisive. They're building a coalition of the disgruntled and you cannot build a cohesive well, nation from that. This is how I feel, Sean. You know, the George Floyd murder... And we can be appalled at the manner in which the man died. But it's incredible, isn't it? Within 48 hours of what happened in Minnesota, we've got protesters, almost riots, going on in the streets of London that leads to Bristol, to statues being torn down, to people deciding um, how they're going to interpret uh, British history. And really interesting, in America, you see demands at graduation days for black graduation days, white graduation days, Asian graduation days. And I was reminded, you know, Martin Luther King famously saying, I want my four kids to be judged, not mm -hmm. by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. And I just feel that BLM and all these organisations are actually, there is a Marxist agenda behind it, which is to divide us all up and, and frankly bring down our society. How do you, I mean... Do you see BLM in that light, or am I being over the top? So, so the, here's the things I'd say. That's why I say it's a coalition of the disgruntled. It, who are you for? You're against everything. At some point, that will come round and eat itself, and that will destroy us as a nation. Yeah. When you talk about the George Floyd murder, unfortunately for the black community, that was it's happened again. It wasn't a one-off. It wasn't the first. But I always... Um, caution people two things that happened in America be careful about teleporting all of their politics here we have our own challenges they're not the same as that mm. and BLM in, in particular is a political group that has political ambitions if you support them yes fine yes. But make sure you understand yes. what they're about so would you take the knee Sean look I'm a black man I feel like I'm taking the knee my whole life I don't think I need to take the knee <laughs> but but the, the point is this is that a gesture of solidarity or is it a gesture of submission and I always challenge people, are you doing it because you want to or are you doing it because you don't want to get cancelled? You know, where's your bravery? When someone said to me, are you for BLM? I said, I'm for the emancipation of black people, but I can't be for an organisation that wants to destroy the nuclear family. Because if you, there's one yes, thing I could magically do... And that, and that do, gets forgotten. Yeah, yes. it was on their website. Yeah, yeah. If there's one thing I could magically do for the black community, it'd be make our family structures better. Because that, that, that benefits you in all ways. And that's the kind of thing I want to say to people. Be you black, be you white. Let's talk about being British. If you're a white person, don't feel nervous about talking about racism. Come into the conversation. And if someone accuses you of being racist before you've even opened your mouth, they are up to something. And I met a very elderly um, white guy once 
and we were at an event and they asked the BNP not to attend because I was there and I begged them to let the BNP in. And I give them a the due, they did let them in. Mm. And afterwards, the white guy said to me, he's an old guy, he said, people of my generation need to hear that conversation because I never had any idea what's going on in your mind and in your heart. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I didn't know you were so proud of being British. I, di I, I didn't know that you thought our, our system was good. All of these things are conversations sure. we need to have. Sure. Does this country have challenges? Of course it is, but we'll get over them only if we do it together. Thank you. Pleasure. That was Sean Bailey on Talking Pints. And boy, wasn't that passionate. Right, it's time for Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions and I don't get any pre-sight of them. So anything could happen here. Cameron, on email, asks, just wondering if you like football. Which football team do you support? Well, so, I am much more of a cricket fan and a golf fan, and I'm going to be at Lord's on Friday to watch us probably get stuffed by India, but hey, there we are. I'll be there. But I do watch football. I followed, of course, the... England, uh, progress in the Europeans. Uh, I finished up at Wembley for the final, which wasn't the most pleasant place to be on the evening. Our family have supported Crystal Palace for generations. You know, my grandmother and grandfather used to go. I was going there in the late 60s through the 1970s. One of my sons has been a season ticket holder, so we are a family quite linked to Crystal Palace. Camilla, on email, asks, what do you think about the likelihood of Clause 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol being invoked if Frost and the EU can't find a solution by August the 31st? Do you know what I think? They'll kick the can down the road. That's what I think they'll do. Uh, Northern Ireland has found itself in the most awful position. To be fair to Boris Johnson, he did inherit a very bad hand of cards from Theresa May. However, I think to uh, have said some of the things he said to the Northern Irish people that simply weren't true, and he must have known they weren't true, was wrong, uh, and they've effectively finished up being annexed. We've allowed a part of our country to be annexed by the European Union, and something has to be done. And if the EU won't budge, at some point, we're going to have to say, right, enough is enough. I suspect the August deadline, as I say, will get kicked down the road. Peter on email asks, should the British public be putting more pressure on Downing Street to call out and attempt to tackle the hugely climate damaging actions of China and India? Well, yes, of course we should. And I know Boris, I, mean, I know that climate change has now become the prime minister's religion. He talks about it the whole time. But the fact is, we produce 1% of the CO2 in the world. He talks about coal not being used anymore, prime minister. Coal consumption is higher than it was 10 years ago. And the Chinese in 2021 will build another 100 coal-fired power stations. So I hope you've enjoyed the debate tonight, particularly around climate change. Uh, you know, it is not right to alarm everybody. It is not right to say the end of the world is nigh. They've been doing that since 1989 at the United Nations. Uh, let's get some balance on this. Thank you for joining me. I'm back tomorrow.